Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's David Beer details the long and growing green card backlog. Economist Ben Powell drinks his way through socialist countries. Christopher Coyne and Abigail Hall detail the troubling relationship between U.S. militarism abroad and policing at home. And Venezuelan opposition leader Maria Corina Machado provides a briefing on Venezuela today. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Each year, the Cato Institute marks Constitution Day with a day of festivities, Uh, no balloon animals, but festivities nonetheless, uh, where we talk about the cases of the most recent Supreme Court term and uh, look forward to what's coming up on the Supreme Court's docket. And of course, on that day, the Cato Institute releases the first and still the best uh, review of the most recent uh, Supreme Court term. Uh, that duty to make sure it is both the first and the best falls now to Trevor Burris, a uh, research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and of course, Ilya Shapiro, who directs the Robert A. Levy Center for the Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, yeah, ed- ed- welcome. Ed- editing 11 uh, volumes of that journal was enough. I thought I'd give Trevor a shot. And as I understand it, before we get started uh, in earnest here, uh, when you were doing it, you had a Trevor working for you. Uh, and Trevor, unfortunately, does not have a Trevor working for him. <laughs> well, at least the last few years yes. I had a Trevor. Uh, before that, nine was, years. Yeah. Well, first there was junior intern Trevor. Yes, then yeah, you know, I mean, there was well, Trevor that, in training, and right, eventually, right. Uh, and, yeah. now, and now we're Mecca Trevor. Yes. So mm-hmm. uh, let's begin uh, with some of the cases uh, in the most recent Supreme Court term that will be commented upon in the next edition of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, what's become to be known as the American Legion case. This was the giant cross case that uh, sat on public property. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but give us sort of what are, what are the details of the case and what are, what did our commenter uh, here uh, make of that case? This was a cross to uh, commemorate the war dead from World War One. So recently celebrated uh, its centenary, uh, not the cross, I guess the cross was put up a, a few years later, uh, ended up being on, on parkland uh, controlled by uh, the government. Uh, and a few years ago, several uh, atheists and uh, the American Humanist Association sued, uh, alleging that this is a violation of the Establishment Clause, that by running this, uh, you know, uh, keeping this this cross on, on public land, that, that's establishing uh, religion. Uh, and this sort of picks up where the court last was about 15 years earlier with the Ten Commandments cases, where the upshot was that if there's an old monument and happens to be outdoors, then it's okay. But if it's new and indoors and kind of hastily assembled as part of the culture wars, it's not okay. Um, and we got a really good... Uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court ended up ended up uh, ruling seven to two to allow the cross, uh, and we have a, a really good article by one of the leading constitutional law scholars, former uh, judge of the Tenth Circuit, now Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell, uh, to cover the case. And McConnell is one of our uh, th- three authors we have in our uh, review, actually, who. Uh, were extensively cited by the court in the cases that they write about, which we're pretty proud of, uh, sometimes by the dissent. And McConnell is one of the leading scholars of religious, of law, establishment clause, and free exercise clause. Uh, he points out in his case, in his article, that what we had before 
uh, was this test of did the government establish a religion, and it was this thing called the Lemon Test, which is which is joke is always it's very well named because it's like a bad car you drive off the used car lot. It was a bad test. It was impossible to predict. It was it was three different parts that you could weigh in different ways, and six justices actually pretty much every justice on the court had criticized it at some time, but no one had yet put a knife through the heart of it. Now the court didn't actually so overrule. They, they, they squeezed the they lemon. They squeezed the lemon. Yes, exactly. And so in the <laughs> so in the what McConnell points out is that lemon wasn't overruled exactly in this case, but it's pretty much dead if you look at the constellation of votes. It'd be hard for a circuit court judge trying to apply lemon now to figure out where it would apply. And one thing that's good that he points out his his article is called "No More Old Symbol Cases" because we've had these. These suits that I think a lot of people, and I'm not religious, but a lot of people think are ridiculous that someone is so up in arms about this cross that they feel like they have to sue about it. And the establishment clause is important, but that means established religions. It doesn't mean symbols in parks. And we've had all these silly cases, as Ilya mentioned, where they upheld something because there were three extra uh, symbols or as like a nativity scene, but it also had a, a Santa Claus and, and menorah. And so they upheld that. But if you didn't have three extra, just the things that constitutional rulings shouldn't hinge on. And now at least the rule seems to be if it's an old religious symbol that has minim multiple meanings to many people, some of them could be religious. No one's complained about it for a very long time. We're generally not going to say this is establishment. Now, it's not a super clear rule, but I think we are kind of done with with suing about something that's been up for a hundred years. Now, whether if it was and, put and, up and yesterday- has, And has gained cultural significance. And in fact, taking it down would have more of an anti-religious message than whatever religious message is for keeping it. Yeah. So, and the lower court actually said something strange in, what, when, in one part of its opinion. It says it either can take down the cross or cut the arms off of it. And you're like, well, that that would that would be wouldn't worse. that establish masonry? Yeah, that obelisk. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's it's a great article from a very significant author about a case that hopefully will will do away with a with some of these sort of head scratching challenges to religious symbols. But I, you know, jumping ahead a, a little bit, there is another establishment clause case coming up next term uh, in the hot uh, policy area of of school choice programs. And this is effectively the last legal barrier to school choice programs across the country. Many states have what are known as Blaine Amendments that were passed in a, uh, a time of anti-Catholic bigotry that are essentially the Establishment Clause on steroids that prevent the direct funding of religious institutions, including schools, uh, by taxpayer funds. And so in, in many places, even that have survived political hurdles to create programs for tax credits that go to scholarships that students can use at parochial, among other uh, private school options, um, the, the, you know, this if, if, if the court rules in what's called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue to strike down the state Blaine Amendment, then, then it just becomes a pure political question. There are no further legal barriers uh, of, of that kind to school choice. And a bit of a programming note for those uh, interested in that case, the uh, Montana scholarship tax credit case. I spoke with uh, the attorney Erica Smith on that case uh, on a recent uh, Cato podcast. And that provides an excellent segue for our two more cases that we're about to talk about. These are both cases that were ultimately handled at the high court by the Institute for Justice. One of those is Tennessee Wine and Spirits v. Thomas. This is essentially setting a residency requirement uh, or a residency for a certain time requirement before you can 
get the kind of licensing required in order to open a liquor store in Tennessee, right? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, the case is at the intersection of the the dormant commerce clause and the 21st amendment. That is, we know about the commerce clause it's used to justify all sorts of expansive federal programs, but the text of the constitution says uh, Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. Well, what happens if it's not regulating in a particular area, but a state does regulate and that has some sort of extraterritorial or interstate effect on uh, on commerce, uh, uh, many scholars and uh, at least a majority of the Supreme Court over time has found that this kind of negative uh, commerce clause or dormant commerce clause uh, exists as well. It's kind of a constitutional complement to statutory preemption. That is, in some areas, when Congress hasn't spoken, it's still occupied the field, and so no state statutory scheme can uh, can intrude upon that. Well, similarly, at a, at a constitutional level. And here, the question is beyond the wrinkle of, you know, does this have an impact on interstate commerce? It involves alcohol, and therefore, not only does this make for lots of colorful metaphors during the argument and what have you and in the briefing, uh, but it involves the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition, but also gave states new powers to regulate the importation of and transportation of alcohol within state lines. So the question is, this kind of Tennessee uh, residential requirement for uh, uh, for a liquor license uh, is it somehow fallen to the purvey of the Twenty First Amendment into that special state solicitude uh, for alcohol regulation that doesn't exist for uh, you know regulation of of widget or widgets or other products? Now, if you had a two year residency requirement for being a uh, having a carpenter store or something like that. It would be unconstitutional. It wouldn't even survive for a second. So the question: Can the Twenty First Amendment save this? I like this case partially because I'm, I really enjoy the history of the Twenty First Amendment. Actually, the first constitutional case I can remember reading when I was a teenager was when my parents, who grew up in Oklahoma, told me that that when they were growing up, they, my mom could drink before my dad uh, because there was a time in Oklahoma where they had an eighteen year old drinking age for women. <clears throat> for three two beer and twenty one for for men, this was challenged eventually in a Supreme Court case called Craig v. Boren, which was the first case to hold that the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment also prohibits sex discrimination based on sex. But Oklahoma also tried to defend the law by saying the Twenty First Amendment, Section Two, which repealed prohibition, but it says it is illegal to transport alcohol into the state in violation of the laws thereof, gives them complete dictatorial control to do whatever they want on alcohol, including violating doing sex discrimination on these grounds. And there's been a lot of these cases where states tried to violate the First Amendment and said, oh, the 21st Amendment lets us do this to alcohol. They tried to violate uh, the ex post facto clause. They tried to violate the Bill of Attainder. There's a bunch of them. So this was sort of another example of this. And then our article is written by Braden Busick of the uh, Beacon Center in Tennessee. And Which is a, the, the leading uh, <clears throat> free market think tank uh, that we partner with from time to time on, on Tennessee cases. Exactly. And it's a uh, it's a great article. He, he gets into the fact that ultimately when the court struck this down, which they did, they kind of do something that libertarians have been asking for a while. They, you know, they, they understand the 21st Amendment means something, that that's something you can do with alcohol but that you can't do with other things. But they also recognize a kind of protectionism uh, that, that, is, that is not okay, that won't be ratified. So the 21st Amendment will protect something about commerce 
that w in alcohol, but it won't protect this two-year residency requirement that doesn't serve any purpose. So they kind of look behind us. In all these cases, IJ licensing cases, all these things where you say, you should look behind this and see this pretextual, that this is not why they're doing this. There's their stated reasons for doing this are not correct. Well, the, the court did look behind it. So this is a case, and as Braden points out in his article, that will be cited in future cases and that you're trying to get the court to look behind the purposes of a law. And to be clear, the court struck it down, the, yes. the Tennessee Law 7-2, to two, with the two dissenting justices uh, uh, being uh, Gorsuch and Thomas, with whom uh, I and, and Cato's position tends to agree on, on most other things. Uh, but Gorsuch is uh, a firm opponent of the Dormant Commerce Clause, yet here... Uh, his opinion was mostly about the 21st Amendment, adopting a more uh, 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 expansive view of it. Although, as as Trevor said, uh, you know, regulating a liquor store license is very different than setting the rules for what kind of trucks or trains uh, you have to have to ship alcohol, or saying that you can't be on the road with alcohol on Sundays, or or whatever the case uh, might be for the actual transportation and importation rules. All right. So, in in the court, looking. Uh, beyond sort of the pretext for this, the stated purpose of the law, does that does that give a sense of maybe a greater willingness down the road to uh, more critically examine the stated reasons that uh, the government wants to have some regulation or a law or some sort of uh, policy? You would hope. Uh, I I don't. I think most of that depends upon the justices sort of dispositions toward various types of regulations. I don't think that you're going to see, if someone doesn't want to look behind a licensing law or something like this, I don't think you're going to see it, a huge change uh, in the jurisprudence. But you can now cite this as a reason, and there's a few of these where you can say, look behind the law and you'll you'll see what's really going on here. And so it just gives another arrow, arrow in the quiver for litigators who try and get uh, judges to do that. At least for protectionism, if not for impositions on economic liberty more broadly. Okay. Another uh, case that was ultimately handled by the Institute for Justice at the Supreme Court, I believe they took this case over at a certain point in the, as it moved through the courts, Tim's v. Indiana. This is a case that dealt with excessive fines for specific crimes. This is a provision of the Bill of Rights of the Eighth Amendment, the Excessive Fines Clause, one of the few that has not been incorporated against the states, meaning applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Uh, and uh, really interesting, you know, that, that, that's interesting theory, of course, but uh, it's against the backdrop of our national debate on civil asset forfeiture and uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, uh, there was a small time uh, a drug dealer in Indiana, uh, Mr. Timms, uh, who was uh, uh, convicted of of this uh, you know, misdemeanor uh, 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 drug uh, uh, sales and uh, was sentenced to probation and a little bit of home confinement, I believe, uh, no prison time. Uh, but then they uh, the the prosecutors uh, sought to uh, uh, collect his forty four thousand dollar Range Rover, his car. Uh, and by the way, he bought that car with his inheritance, not with the proceeds of any uh, illicit uh, drug sales or what have you. Uh, what's important about that is that uh, that $44,000 is more than four times the maximum statutory fine uh, for the crime for which he was convicted. And so he argued that this is a uh, violation of the excessive fines clause. The Supreme Court ultimately unanimously uh, uh, agreed with him, not on the point that it was an excessive fine, but that the excessive fines clause does apply to the states. And so now it's back in the Indiana court system to determine whether the seizure of this uh, expensive vehicle uh, is indeed uh, uh, an excessive fine.
It's an important case. Uh, we'll have to see going forward how much people can use this to challenge forfeitures themselves. That actually came up in oral argument a bit a bit about how do we define this as an excessive fine. So the, the court didn't actually flush any of that out. Uh, they were only asked to decide, do, does this apply to the states now through the 14th Amendment? And they said yes. Uh, the article in the Supreme Court Review is written by Brian Garad and Brian Frizzell of the Constitutional Accountability Center, who are sometimes friends and sometimes uh, opponents, uh, uh, a sort of liberal originalism. I'm not sure exactly what their tagline is, but, uh, but on this one, we see completely eye to eye. Uh, it's a great article kind of giving an overview of the meaning of incorporation, why they decided in the 14th Amendment that we had to have the Bill of Rights apply to the states, actually wholesale at the time that we needed it, it was to protect this kind of practice, including against former the free men, the free slaves who were getting fined in, in different ways excessively, sometimes to keep them in essentially a version of slavery. So we have this important thing that hadn't happened for a while. If uh, longtime listeners might have sort of kept track of this incorporation, we had this with McDonald v. City of Chicago. It's been about a 150-year process that should have actually taken one year when they passed the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but they've been doing it piecemeal. And actually, there's another version of an incorporation case next term, and we'll almost get all of them. Uh, and this is about the right to trial by jury and unanimous verdicts, and we'll, we're almost there for all the remaining ones. All right. So one more note on 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 the Tim's case is that this, for me at least, was the biggest disappointment of uh, Justice Kavanaugh this term. In that, uh, even though the court uh, unanimously did apply uh, this right against the states, uh, Justices Gorsuch and Thomas each wrote separately to talk about the importance of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, Kavanaugh did not join either of their opinions. So that to the extent that people are looking to see how much of an originalist uh, he is, he did not show it in this case. Okay, on to the Gamble case. This is a case about double jeopardy and whether or not the federal government and states may uh, impose sentence or charge and convict somebody is for the exact same conduct. Um, this was n notable, at least in my mind, uh, for the people who dissented. But first, give us the details of the case. Sure. Uh, Mr. Gamble uh, was a felon, had served his time, uh, but then... Uh, possessed uh, a gun, and that violated Alabama's law against felons in possession of firearms. He was convicted and sentenced, I think, to two years in prison, um, but the feds uh, decided that wasn't enough, and so they separately charged him under the federal statute for felon in possession of a firearm uh, and got an additional sentence. He challenged that uh, additional indictment uh, and, and conviction and sentence on the grounds that this violated his constitutional right against double jeopardy, and by the way, that right, uh, part of the Fifth Amendment, uh, wasn't incorporated until about, uh, I think it's 50 years ago uh, or so, but there was this uh, uh, long-standing uh, exception or doctrine uh, about dual sovereigns or separate sovereigns. That is, in our system of government, states are not subunits of the federal government. They're their own sovereigns. We split up sovereignty in order to protect uh, uh, liberty so that uh, nobody has the absolute power uh, uh, over you. Um, uh, but uh, you know, Mr. Gamble was saying, well, 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 how can this be? Why am I being charged uh, twice? It doesn't matter to me whether it's the state doing it twice, the feds doing it twice, or the state wants the feds uh, uh, once. 
And um, that's problematic, uh, especially given the explosion of the federal criminal code uh, over the last decades, uh, such that there's much more opportunity to have these kind of uh, double charges by both sovereigns. Now, this this was surprising. So 7-2, they upheld the, du the dual sovereign exception. And some people like Justice Thomas, who had previously questioned it, rethought. And this is kind of weird because they took the question of uh, should the dual sovereignty exception to the double jeopardy clause be overruled. That was the question they were asking. That means there were at least four justices who were considering that. And then they, to get cert, and then they didn't even have four justices in dissent, which means that people, Thomas, I would imagine one of them, switched their minds after looking at the briefing. It's an interesting question that comes up in the decision because there's a lot of things that arise out of the double jeopardy clause. For example, subsequent prosecutions of Indian of Indian, after Indian tribes or even foreign prosecutions, then some of these come up in the decision where if you took the double jeopardy clause really literally, uh, you would, you know, possibly a person who had been tried in a foreign government, maybe at a kangaroo court or in some sort of bad example of court, would not be able to be tried here uh, with that jurisdiction over them. So it's a pretty difficult question. That's what the court wrestles with. The real problem with the dual sovereignty exception is that the federal criminal code is not just too much, but they shouldn't have as much overlapping jurisdiction as they claim to have. M Mr. Gamble shouldn't having a gun should never have been in federal jurisdiction to begin with if you had the right interpretation of the Commerce Clause. Our article on this is written by Anthony Colangelo from Southern Methodist University, and it's a scholarly article, but if you're kind of a dork about jurisdiction, which I am, uh, he gets into the nitty-gritty about, well, what does this mean now, especially as we use international law to kind of understand who has jurisdiction and who what two sovereigns might have claim over some type of conduct. It's a little bit of a disappointing opinion, uh, but I think... Uh, we have to rectify federal criminal code before, and then we can figure out more about this double jeopardy issue. Justice Gorsuch's dissent is notable in that he's effectively saying, if if you're reading federalism, you know the majority talks about federalism, we have to respect the sovereigns, and I get that. But if you're reading federalism uh, to give uh, the government, uh, any government, more power to uh, put you in 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 jeopardy of losing your life, liberty, or property, then then you're then you're doing it wrong. We'll close very quickly with uh, with a case that that has been mentioned, I believe, here before, and that is Kaiser v. Wilkie. This is a case about so-called our deference, A-U-E-R deference, which is to be distinguished from uh, Chevron deference uh, with respect to courts. Uh, who wrote for the Who wrote for the Cato Supreme Court review on this case? So Paul Arkin from the Heritage Foundation uh, did his article on that, and one reason we asked him is he had written on this before, and and like Michael McConnell and also Gary Lawson in the Gundy case was cited by Gorsuch in his dissent uh, in this case, saying that the court ended up holding our deference. Technically a, a concurrence. Con technically a concurrence, and this was another one where they the court. The question for the court was, should this case be overruled? Should our, in this case called Seminole Rock, be overruled? And sort Our of... deference is the deference that judges give to agencies when they reinterpret their own regulations. They say it's ambiguous, we're going to take it a different way, as distinct from Chevron, which is uh, deference to agencies interpreting the statutes under which they operate. And, and, and so Justice Kagan writes the majority opinion and basically just takes our adds a bunch of qualifications to it and creates something that we are going to see what it means in the future. They make it look more like Chevron. Now, what that means to lay listeners is that there's some more 
constraints on reading the statute, reading the regs and seeing if they're clear, making sure that the agency has expertise, all these things right. is, before is, they are, are they experts in the sense of biologists and economists rather than simply another set of lawyers reading it because judges can read the stuff as well as the uh, lawyers at the uh, IRS or the EPA. Yeah, so, and that's her, her moiety. She keeps bringing up like chemical... Uh, chemical regulations and who would you want to interpret a, a regulation about the moiety of different alkalines or she she's being intentionally obscure when she says this so you know of course you would want a chemist who works at the given department to interpret that not some judge and so she puts some more constraints on it Ju chief justice roberts writes to say that i think that justice gorsuch who has a concurrence in name who says i think we should have just killed our rather than like put all these sticks around it uh that they're really close but we won't know the effect effects of this. And that's one thing Paul points out, until we see how it churns through lower courts, now they're supposed to apply this new version of our deference. All right. I mentioned that the Supreme Court review will be, if all goes perfectly, released on September 17th, uh, 2019. Trevor is sweating as we're sitting here as he uh, furiously edits all of the uh, articles. Edit, editing. You can't see it, but he's actually editing articles right now while talking. Yes. So uh, in terms of the, the next term of the court, what cases uh, are of most interest to you two individually? I mentioned one. I'm not even sure what Cato will do in these cases, but we have this question. It's just a personal interest, Ramos v. Louisiana, whether or not a unanimous jury verdict is required by the right to trial by jury. And there's a bunch of interesting stuff going on with that one. There's also a really interesting case called Collar v. Kansas, which is about whether or not a state can abolish the insanity defense at criminal law. That sounds crazy. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> Gosh, Ilya. Uh, the insanity defense of criminal law. So the uh, the question there, those are just interesting to me abstractly, but we have some important cases. Right now, the state of New York, city of New York is feverishly trying to moot and get this gun case kicked out, the first gun case that the Supreme Court had agreed to hear since 2010. And it remains to be seen if they're going to be successful in that uh, because it was a restriction that prohibited per permitted and licensed New York City gun owners from traveling outside of the city with a locked and, and unloaded handgun to go to other gun ranges or even like a summer home. So it's a pretty strange law. They tried to repeal that law. They repealed that law. So they're just, now they're saying, well, this isn't law anymore. So we're going to get rid of this. This is all politics trying to keep a Second Amendment case from going to the court. So that one, I don't know, Ilya, do you think it will go away? I think they're going to set it for argument and wrap in the mootness uh, into the argument. I mean, yeah. Um, otherwise, they would have dismissed it already, I'm sure. Your cases? Right. Well, I mentioned uh, Espinoza, the school choice case out of Montana involving the uh, religion clauses and equal protection. That's really important. Uh, whether President Trump can rescind DACA, uh, this was the uh, granting temporary status and certain benefits to um, people that had been brought into the country illegally as children. Um, you know, uh, I'm personally a supporter of that kind of policy, but I think it. Uh, uh, it takes a law to change a law, and like DAPA, which was providing similar relief to parents of uh, American citizens and green card holders, which the Supreme Court ended up uh, affirming an injunction four to four, and then Trump rescinded that. Uh, but like DAPA, um, you know, uh, either it is a changing of the law, in which case the president can't do it alone, uh, and the, the following president is fully. Uh, 
uh, authorized to, to resend it on that basis, or it's just a, a change of enforcement priority, in which case there's no reason why uh, a president couldn't, couldn't simply change that priority for any good, bad, or, or no reason at all. But uh, this is a case of, to me, a case of uh, uh, executive power. And so Cato is filing. Hopefully, we're going to get some professors, maybe other organizations that similarly favor immigration reform and favor the DACA policy, uh, but uh, you know, don't favor the executive being able to rewrite law whenever he or she sees fit. All right. September 17th. Uh, many of you will have heard this recording uh, before September 17th. So we encourage you to, to, to tune in and uh, or come visit us at the Cato Institute for Constitution Day. It is a heady day of discussion about constitutional issues. Ilya. The Simon Lecture, the way that we end uh, every Constitution uh, Day this year, will be given by Judge Tom Hardiman of the Third Circuit, a very well-respected judge across the country on, on various issues and uh, was a shortlister, apparently, for both of the seats that went to uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, respectively. All right. So join us on September 17th. And of course, all of that uh, will be on our website for posterity immediately after September 17th. And you can find out more about Constitution Day at our website, Cato.org. There can be no mistake about it at this point. The Trump administration is making immigration, legal immigration, more difficult, and intentionally so. But even if you strip away the intentions of the White House, the backlog of green cards faced by would-be Americans is long and getting longer, and it's not a partisan problem. At a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing, Cato's David Beer detailed the issue. Immigrants to the United States can face two different types of waits. The first type is just a bureaucratic uh, processing times. The time it takes to adjudicate an application. Uh, first for the sponsor of the immigrant, their petition needs to be processed, and then the application of the immigrant themselves. But there's another type of wait, which is the focus of uh, my paper. And that is the time it takes for a green card to become available under the immigration quotas. The quotas are the annual limits on green cards uh, for certain types of immigrants. In general, only three types of immigrants don't have any uh, quota at all. Those are for spouses, parents, and minor children of US citizens. Other immigrants have a quota. Um, some have waiting lists and others do not. So refugees and diversity lottery winners, they have a quota, but uh, the government only accepts as many applicants as it's going to admit in a, in a year. So there's no waiting list, there's no waiting time. Uh, though many, of course, do wait overseas a long time for the chance to access those categories. But a third of all immigrants have quotas and they have waiting lists, and that's who I'm going to focus on uh, today. That's the red portion of the pie chart there. These are those immigrants. Um, here are the, the quota categories with the waiting lists. The, the quota system in immigration law is known as the preference system because all of the categories are prioritized um, in order of preference. Congress last updated these quotas in the Immigration Act of 1990. The preference system is divided into family preference and employment uh, preference categories. And each of the categories have their own separate quotas. 
So we're all waiting in different lines. But that's not all. Each nationality within those categories is waiting in a separate line because the law states that no nationality can use more than 7% of the green cards made available in a year. Meaning that if a country hits that limit, nationals of other countries get to pass them in the line. These per-country limits, as they're known, almost exclusively affect Mexicans, Filipinos, Chinese, and especially Indians, because these countries have so many applicants uh, relative to other countries. Here is how the process for uh, the quota categories works. First, they must be sponsored by a family or a family member or an employer. They wait for processing of that petition. And second, the immigrant is informed that the quota in their category is filled. And they have to wait until a number is available at some date in the future. And then finally, after they get through that wait, they're informed that the immigrant can apply and they have to wait for processing of that position. So you have two bureaucratic processing waits, and in the middle, you have this wait. Uh, that's uh, what we're going to discuss now. Every month, uh, the State Department publishes what it calls the Visa Bulletin. And here's an example from October 2018. They show the dates that you have to have been sponsored before... This is the date on which someone is sponsored. So, for, uh, for example, um, siblings of U.S. citizens from Mexico, which is highlighted right here, were sponsored uh, before January 22, 1998, could apply for a green card. And that's what the Visa Bulletin is telling people. If you were sponsored before this date, you can apply. So, more than 20 years ago, these people were first sponsored, and now they're uh, eligible to apply for a green card. That is the wait time that we're talking about. Because every immigrant is waiting in separate lines with different waits, no one has been tracking what the average is for the average immigrant moving through this quota process since it was last updated. And that's what uh, my paper uh, does. And here is the result. Paper, the paper shows that since 1991, when the last update was implemented, the wait times as a result of the quotas doubled from two years and eight months to five years and 10 months. These are rounded to three and six years. For Indians, uh, they're the nationality that had the longest wait. Uh, the waits were eight years and six months before they could even apply for the green card. But these are just the averages due to the separate category limits and the per-country limits, the variation between individuals is huge. So 28% waited more than a decade to apply for a green card. And 5% waited more than two decades to apply. That's up from just 3%. So just 3% in 1991 were waiting more than a decade to apply for a green card. On the other extreme, just 2% um, had no weight at all in 2018. In 1991, almost a third of immigrants going through the quota categories didn't have to wait at all as a result of the quotas. They could immediately apply. Um, that's almost completely gone away from our system. So the system has clearly already become something Congress never envisioned 
when it enacted the Immigration Act of 1990. They thought wait times would be one thing. Now they are something so completely different, it's almost unimaginable. But here's the thing. It's going to get so much worse in the future for legal immigrants. That's because these waits have resulted in a massive backlog of applicants. Nearly 5 million people were waiting for uh, the opportunity to apply for a green card in 2018. Under the current system, it will take more than a century to process all of these people in all of these different lines under current law. Obviously, that's impossible. They will not all get processed. Um, my estimates in the report show that based on the average mortality rate for individuals, uh, that at least 675,000 people who are currently waiting for a green card will die before they get their green card. That's about 14% of all the people who are currently waiting uh, in line. Here's just one example uh, for the EB2, EB3 categories. These are employer-sponsored immigrants from India. Uh, currently, there are about 550,000 Indians waiting in line for a green card. It will take 49 years to work through everyone if they all refuse to give up and stick it out to the end. Uh, about 9% will die, so about 50,000 uh, people will die uh, before they get their green card. And you'll notice this other category called children aging out, and it's worth taking a, a little bit of a detour into this rather horrific aspect of our legal immigration system and a consequence of the wait times. Under immigration law, any immigrant is entitled to bring with them their spouse and minor children. So their children wait in line with them as they go through the process. But when the immigrants turn, when the child turns 21, they lose eligibility because they're no longer considered a minor child under immigration law. That's what's called aging out. This hardship is particularly uh, difficult for Indian nationals because Almost all of them are already in the United States working on an H-1B visa, which is a temporary high-skilled visa. So they're in the United States with their family. Their child is here legally growing up here in the United States. And on their 21st birthday, they're informed you lose your legal status in the United States. You either have to deport or find another status, usually some student visa status or otherwise. Then they would have to find another employer to sponsor them separately. They get no credit for all the time that they already spent waiting in the green card queue. And if the wait times uh, in this paper are correct, they will never, ever be eligible for uh, a green card through the employer-sponsored uh, system. So to sum up the current situation, immigrants are waiting longer than ever for green cards, twice as long to get through the process, 28% of them are waiting more than a decade. Something must be done to keep legal immigration viable into the 21st century. For two economists drinking their way through socialist and relatively new former socialist countries, 
It turns out that access to good beer and a wide variety of beer isn't such a bad metric for economic success. At a Cato Institute event for the book Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World, co-author Ben Powell discussed the resurgent popularity of socialism and how beer makes the case against it. The publisher's original blurb for the book said that socialism sucks as the bastard stepchild of Anthony Bourdain and Milton Friedman. And uh, that's exactly what we were going for that, of uh, good, solid economics, but communicated in a, a fun, entertaining way that will reach people who wouldn't otherwise read the usual academic stuff that Bob and I write. So uh, the timing on it is obviously good with the, the popularity of socialism. We actually started the book over two years ago, and part of the motivation when the, the book's theme kind of took shape was the growing popularity of socialism in 2016. This is the uh, ever-prominent Michael Moore uh, tweeting out that young people like socialism uh, over capitalism, but confusing these things with fairness and selfishness. And what Bob and I wanted to do is write a book that actually explained what socialism is and is not, how it functions, and uh, to do it in an entertaining way. It's also the case that Bob wanted to get drunk in Cuba, and I wanted a way to write it off my taxes, so we decided we'd do that as the trial chapter. Uh, and in fact, uh, as I was thinking about it, uh, if the book does well, I'm pretty sure I should tell the IRS that I'm going to be researching a sequel for the next few years and writing off all of my bar tabs from now till then. Uh, <clears throat> so it's no surprise to anybody now that socialism is back and popular. Uh, a lot of the focus has been on young people and millennials who are attracted to it. But of course, with the presidential debates, you see it uh, among mainstream Democrats as well now. The New York Times had a, a year-long, on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, a year-long column called Red Century. I think exactly one column in that year was dedicated to the economic stagnation of the system. A handful mentioned that atrocities, and almost always it was Stalin, I think once Mao. Instead, you got articles like why women had better sex under socialism, which, even if true, I don't know how we weight this against 100 million dead bodies. Uh, but this was the atmosphere that was taking hold as we were doing the book. It's obviously grown now. And we have confusion from politicians like Bernie Sanders, who says countries like Denmark, Sweden, and Norway are examples of socialism. They're not. I was going to insert a quote from AOC here, and uh, that was just a placeholder. Uh, then I decided it was better just to leave it like that. So uh, the, the book, the tour that we go through, we start in Sweden, go to Venezuela, Cuba, Korea, China, Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, and then we end up back in the USSA uh, by attending the largest socialist gathering in the United States last summer. So let's start briefly with Sweden, and let's get the definition of socialism here correct. Socialism is some form of collective ownership or control over the major means of production. So this means abolishing private property and the major factors of production, replacing it with collective ownership. In practice, in any large society, this de facto means state ownership and or control of those means of production. Uh, if you're going to have large-scale production, that then means that you're also going to have some form of central planning in order to do the coordination. Uh, a lot of these young socialists like to say, oh, we want socialism from below, and everybody's just going to decide cooperatively what to do. Well, listen, your hippie commune's not going to produce an iPhone, comrade. Uh, you need somebody to coordinate the diverse areas of the economy. And when you don't use property rights that give you prices and profit and loss, that has to be replaced with something, that something is a central plan. I'll let Bob talk a little bit more about democratic socialism later. Uh, so first of all, Sweden, 
in these other Nordic countries, they're not socialist. They're highly capitalist. They all, for the major factors of production, have private property. They have good contract enforcement, a tolerable degree of the rule of law, basically free trade, light regulation of businesses. Now, they have problems. Sweden's got a big welfare state and high taxes. Uh, this is true of the other Nordic countries as well. And these interventions in the free market have consequences, but they don't equal socialism. That's why when we go to social, excuse me, when we go to Sweden, the beer is great, the place is beautiful, it's not socialist. Uh, and Bob is the co-author of the Economic Freedom of the World Index. Uh, when we were writing this, Sweden was ranked 27th freest in the world, i.e. most capitalist, least socialist. Uh, and this is true of other Nordic countries as well. So we can have great beer there. In fact, that's sitting in front of a, a, a Belgian beer bar. And the Belgian beers, even though Belgium's really close by, cost a ton of money, more than you're going to pay for them in Washington, D.C. And in fact, we drank some in South Korea on the other side of the world, and they were cheaper there than they are in Sweden. Um, and this big welfare state has dragged down Sweden's growth, and you know they are not as wealthy relative to the rest of the world as they used to be, but they're still a prosperous place because they're mostly capitalist. Venezuela is the other end of the spectrum. So Venezuela is dead last in Bob's Economic Freedom Index. Uh, Cuba and North Korea are not ranked, but we could guess where they'd be. Uh, but Venezuela, it's important to remember, this is not a place that was always like that. The earliest year of the index in 1970, Venezuela is among, among the 10 most economically free countries in the world. What we saw is a long period of decline in economic freedom in Venezuela as they were moving away from capitalism into worse and worse forms of interventionism. So that they had stagnated, failed to grow. But back in 1970, when they were capitalists, they were also wealthy. In fact, they were wealthier per capita incomes than Spain itself. That's not true by 1998 when Chavez comes to power. Uh, but this was a capitalist, prosperous economy. And it's also, we don't have to go far, back very far to have people pointing to it as successful democratic socialism. Chavez, unlike the other ones, came to power in a democratic election that international observers widely said was fair. Uh, he began putting his socialist policies in place. And what was happening is Venezuela sits on the world's largest oil reserves. Uh, oil prices were high. As a result, his socialist policies were uh, uh, cutting out the core of the economy. Food production was plummeting in Venezuela, but they were using the revenues from oil to import food and other things for the population and give the big free handouts our politicians like to talk about from socialism. But once prices came down shortly after Chavez's death in 2013, and by the way, production also went down because the state-owned oil company, remember, state ownership and control of the means of production, doesn't give very good incentives for maintaining equipment and pipelines and such. So production, as well as prices, are down. They no longer have the foreign exchange to import the necessities. We have the crisis that we see today and that Bob and I saw when we were there in January of 2017 uh, firsthand. In fact, the picture on the top left corner is uh, of the bridge that's been in the news recently where the aid trucks were all stopped from going in from Colombia. The time we were there, people were free to move back and forth across them. And Venezuela by, Venezuelans by the thousands every day were coming across into uh, Colombia to buy basic necessities that were unavailable in the Venezuelan economy. And one striking thing that we saw in this too is it wasn't typical third world poverty. Bob and I have both been to a lot of poor countries. What you saw crossing the border is people who were middle-class, upper-middle-class Venezuelans who still had some access to money that they could use to buy goods when they crossed the border. Uh, this is illustrating what a socialist economy does to those people who were previously prosperous in a capitalist society and seeing them struggling to make ends meet there on the border while we were there. Uh, I should also say, since we have this beer theme running throughout the book, Venezuela ran out 
of beer. If I were a socialist dictator, like toilet paper, beer. These are the things that like, we always have. Uh, by the way, that's not like an election speech. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but what actually happened is they have Polar, which is a nominally privately owned company, but government planning over the economy allocates foreign exchange, and they didn't allocate them enough foreign exchange to import the barley to make the beer. As a result, the country ran out of beer. So next on our, oh, and I should just say about the democratic socialism with them, of course, this is what I think young democratic socialists often miss, is the necessary connection between a lack of economic freedom and a lack of political freedom. So once you abolish private property, you have to move towards planning and state control if you're going to have any sort of advanced production. But that's also going to be extremely inefficient and met with stagnation. People don't like that. That means they're going to throw you out of power if they, they, you let them voluntarily reelect you. But precisely because you've centralized the power of the economy, you're able to repress them so that they can't throw you out of office in a democratic election, which is exactly what we've seen with Maduro. He was reelected last year by wide margins. Yet at the same time, people on average lost something like 24 pounds. They didn't all find Jenny Craig. When your population is literally not getting enough to eat, there's no way you get reelected. Instead, what did you have? You had state employees being ordered to reelect the person or they're going to lose your job. They had food aid stands next to polling places. Um, so that is the necessary connection between uh, socializing your economy and democratic tyranny. In the land of the free, how has U.S. militarism changed domestic policing? The line between how the military treats foreign threats and how police treat Americans is becoming less clear. Chris Coyne and Abigail Hall are authors of Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. They spoke at the Cato Institute in June. Economics is a study of, of the so, is a social science, and so it's a set of tools that allows us to understand the social world, and of course a key part of that is politics in all its various forms and manifestations, including uh, foreign policy and how that policy affects domestic life. And so uh, foreign policy, or what's called, far, what falls under the broad purview of foreign policy is uh, plagued with a, a variety of economic issues, things like incentives, oftentimes perverse incentives, various constraints from resource constraints and, and knowledge or epistemic constraints and so on. And so this, this area is, is ripe for study by economists, and, and economists are often very poor at studying this because uh, they just focus on kind of broad notions of defense. They oftentimes dismiss it as, or, or categorize it as a public good and really don't delve into the actual nitty-gritty. And so it's our hope, among other things, to kind of shed light on that and, and use the tools of economics to shed light on the nuances of American foreign policy, the implications, and to also contribute to a broader conversation, not just among economists, but among a variety of other scholars and policymakers. You bring up a good point. Um, we can talk about the militarization of police, which I think is probably what most people are thinking of when they're talking about militarization broadly, um, which would be the incorporation and the use of military tactics, uh, military dynamics, uh, and also military-grade weapons uh, in the use of civilian policing. Um, when we talk about militarization more broadly, uh, what we're referring to is this uh, larger idea uh, and focus on using uh, the military and military methods uh, as a means of fixing a variety of problems, both domestically and abroad. So the boomerang effect is, is as you mentioned, what we term kind of the general framework or, or, or focus of the book. And it's meant to be a, a very general, broad framework. 
And the core idea underpinning uh, what we call the boomerang effect is, is the following. Uh, foreign intervention, uh, both preparing for and engaging in foreign intervention, provides a laboratory, if you will, for uh, the American government to uh, uh, refine, develop, and innovate tools of social control to manipulate, shape, and influence the behavior of other people abroad. Uh, when the US government intervenes abroad, it is not subject to uh, the same constraints that it is when it intervenes in domestic life. The slack in those constraints allows it to do things that it otherwise would not do domestically. Uh, after those interventions end, or perhaps when they're ongoing in some instances, uh, those in innovations in social control oftentimes return home. They return to domestic uh, life. Uh, and in doing so, they change uh, the fabric of, of domestic life, oftentimes for the worse. And so uh, when this happens, uh, the relationship between government and the citizens changes. Uh, government uh, expands the scope of its power over our lives. And uh, it changes the way that, that daily life operates. And so what we want to point out, or one of the things we want to point out, is how this prof process manifests itself and, and unfolds. The collapse of socialist Venezuela has been coming for more than a decade, but its authorities, particularly Nicolas Maduro, have held on, and life for the average Venezuelan has continued to worsen. Maria Corina Machado is a former member of the Venezuelan National Assembly and Maduro opposition leader. She spoke to the Cato Institute from Venezuela in July. Greetings to all from Caracas, Venezuela. I am very grateful to the Cato Institute for this opportunity, Juan Carlos Hidalgo and Ian Vasquez, and I'm honored to share this panel with the Secretary General of the OAS, Luis Almagro, as well as my fellow member of Vente Venezuela, Pedro Ruchurtu. Venezuela is facing today an existential crossroads. Either we move forward in the root and the path of strength and courage that we've worked in these last months, or we can fall once again in this trap created by the Maduro regime of the so-called dialogues and farce elections. The Venezuelan criminal state has unleashed an unconventional conflict uh, in coalition with terrorist groups such as the ELN, the FARC, Hezbollah, Hamas, drug cartels, and the Cuban tyranny. And they will not let go Venezuelan territory, resources, and institutions unless they are confronted with a stronger liberating force of those democratic actors in the region that understand what's at stake. The consequences of Maduro staying in power, the regime staying in power, are devastating. Just imagine what can happen in Venezuela in six months, or what could happen to Colombia at the end of this year. Certainly, this uh, systematically created exodus of millions of Venezuelans has strong consequences in for our neighboring countries, but, but not all are obvious, because the regime has managed to infiltrate some of these groups of migrants with what they call social movements, which are individuals whose objective is to destabilize these democracies in our, in our region. 
At the same time, we realize what it means, the increasing involvement of Russia and Iran using Venezuela as a hub for intelligence uh, activities and how these constitute an imminent threat for the national security of the United States. So what's next? First, first of all, we need to have a common and, and real characterization of the true nature of the re regime we're facing. This is not a conventional dictatorship. If it were, it would have fallen a long time ago. We are facing a criminal state. And the efficient option to have regime change is through the use of unconventional force in a comprehensive offensive. This should start with the, the, the creation of a coalition of our closest allies, those that suffer the most of Venezuelan tragedy. These are Colombia, Brazil, the Netherlands Antilles, and the United States of America. The objective is to build a credible threat, an imminent and severe threat that has high costs for the regime and its global partners. And this should be done uh, with the use of intelligence, resources, diplomacy, uh, information and communications, uh, international justice, police actions, and specific military activities. The first objective is to dismantle the repression uh, an intelligence apparatus of the regime, which is today its main source of support. Once this is done, we can move ahead in, ahead in coercive and specific actions done with chirurgical precision. This will show the regime that the strength of the liberating forces are certainly bigger, stronger, higher, and most effective of those of the mafia system that keeps them together. There are several myths that the regime has been putting into and, and setting into the um, international public opinion uh, within their narrative. The objective of this myth is, myths is to inhibit the mostly required international action and support needed to produce regime change. First, uh, the regime insists in saying that we are demanding an international invasion. This is the 21st century. I've already mentioned the nature of this conflict, this unconventional war. It is obvious that what we require is the application of strength in those joints, in those, in those points that are critical for the support of the regime. In the framework of the responsibility to protect and stop the genocide that's taking place in Venezuela today. Another myth refers to uh, the idea that getting international support for the liberation of Venezuela will produce a civil war. 
This is absolutely false. In Venezuela, there are not cultural, ideological, ethnical, religious, or regional tensions among our citizens. On the contrary, Venezuela is a society that it's together, it's close together, cohesive, and uh, overwhelmingly demands the departure of the regime immediately. And finally, another myth refers to the, uh, the fact that in order to have a peaceful transition, members of the mafia should be part of that government. This is not only uh, in, unacceptable from an ethical perspective, but would be a huge political error. Because that would mean that Venezuela would turn and consolidate into a mafia state. And we just have to see the history of Nicaragua to understand it, its consequences. That's why today must realize that our objective goes beyond the departure of Maduro or even dismantling the regime that is in power in Venezuela. We need to stop and get rid of the uh, anti-Western, uh, criminal, terrorist, and narco-trafficking forces that have created this revolution, this system, this model that is using our nation to expand and destabilize the whole hemisphere. We Venezuelans are committed to do what it takes, but we need the international support and we need it now. This is our hugest, our biggest um, opportunity and in our nation's and our Republican history. But it is also the biggest threat this hemisphere has faced. There is only one option to move ahead. There is only one option, victory. Thank you very much. When you've worn out your Cato Audio for the month, please take time to browse on over to the Cato Institute's YouTube channel, featuring interviews and video productions on a wide variety of policy issues. Also take a moment to browse Cato's large volume of podcasts available wherever better podcasts are sold. And that includes, of course, the Cato Daily Podcast hosted by yours truly. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.